Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, it's Claire. This week, Money Clinic is on tour. Me and the team are currently on a train heading down to Bristol to record an episode with a live audience at the Bristol Festival of Economics tonight. And we'll be taking live questions from the audience. So wherever you're listening from, sit back and enjoy the journey. And hopefully our final destination will be greater understanding of the economy and why it matters so much for our money. Welcome to Money Clinic, the weekly podcast from the Financial Times about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's Consumer Editor, and this week we're coming to you live from the Great Hall of Bristol Grammar School as part of the Bristol Festival of Economics. Wow, that's a real welcome. Thank you very much. Now, tonight, we're going to focus on how economics affects our everyday financial lives. Now, thank you to everybody who's already submitted a question for our expert panel. I've got those, and we're hoping to squeeze in some more from the floor as the evening goes on. Now, first, the people who I've chosen to help answer your questions about money, economics, life, the universe, and everything are firstly Sarah O'Connor, the FT columnist, and Susanna Streeter, head of money and markets at the investment platform Hargreaves Lansdowne. Great to be here, Claire. Well, Susanna, I was accosting people on the way in and asking them what they might want to ask the panel later. And one of the first people I picked on said, um, Susanna Streeter is my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> so your mum your mum and your dad are, are in the audience. Can we have a big cheer for Mr and Mrs Streeter? <laughs> well, they're not far away because, of course, I grew up near Bristol and uh, certainly have lived actually in the city for nearly three decades now. So obviously come here and support me. Well, what are, what are the big financial stories in Bristol right now? Well, I think like uh, many cities, of course, the cost of living crisis is weighing down very, very heavily on certain sections of the population, particularly um, the poorest, because of course they spend the most money 
um, on the essentials where we've seen those high price rises. Uh, but also, housing is a real issue in this city. Just this month, we've had a huge tower block evacuated because of, of structural difficulties. We've got a real shortage of housing across the city. Uh, university students are being shipped out to, to Wales to a campus there because there isn't enough accommodation. To so, Wales? Yes, absolutely, over the bridge. Wow. Simply, it's so expensive. Mm. Well, thank you, Susanna. Now, Sarah Connor, your associate editor and economist at the FT. Now, tell the audience some of the things that you like writing about for the FT, because often, I mean, you are a young person yourself, but often the issues that you write about really affect young people. We've got lots of young faces in the audience tonight. That's very nice of you to describe me as a young person. I, I think that's because I was when I first joined the FT in 2007. I'm not sure I still am at the age of 39, but thank you for saying so. So, yes, yeah, so I write about economics. I also write quite a lot about jobs, the world of work and how it's changing and how technology is beginning to change the, the way that we work and how much we're going to work in the future. And I'm actually on book leave from the FT at the minute, which is six months of time away from work to try and write a book, which is really exciting. And um, I keep telling people it's like being on maternity leave, but without a baby to look after. It's absolutely amazing. I love it. Can you tell us any more about your book? Yeah, so it's about, it's about work and technology. My working title is Human Robots. Um, so it's exploring both the kind of dystopian and hopefully more utopian possibilities about what's coming towards us. Okay, so we're going to be quizzing you about AI later. So I'd like to start off our discussion tonight with the help of you, the audience. Now, there was a story in the Financial Times that the government wants to strengthen financial education in primary and secondary schools and further education, which is something that the FT's Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign has been lobbying for for a long time, because frankly, what we're taught in school about money, you could probably write on the back of a postage stamp. So I am going to ask for a show of hands. Put your hand up if you wished that you had learned more about money in school. Excellent. Okay, there's a forest of hands. Um, as our start of the tent, Sarah, what would you have liked to have learned about money in school? In fact, did you learn anything about money in school? Literally on our last day of school, so my school finished age 16, and a lot of us weren't going on to sixth form college. A lot of us were going to begin our kind of adult working lives at that point. Our, our teacher, our form teacher, obviously had a sudden thought that he hadn't taught us anything about how to navigate the real world. So he said, before you go, just one piece of advice. If you ever have to pay someone some money with a cheque and you don't actually have any money in your bank account, just put the wrong date on and it'll buy you a little bit of time. <laughs> <laughs> and that was literally the one bit of sort of financial education that I got at school. Um, so what, I what would you have liked to have learned about other than forging other checks? Than forging checks. It would have been great to learn something about pensions and why they're important. So that, you know, when I did have the opportunity to pay into a pension at the FT, I knew that it, was, it actually made sense to kind of pay in as much as I possibly could to get the, the matching contributions for my employer. Susanna, how about... You, did you learn anything about money in school? And if you didn't, what would you have liked to I learned about money in school really through working from the age of 14, first as a washer-upper, then as a waitress, then as a um, behind the bar. And that really taught me the value, actually, of money and, and just how much you need to work to, to have that money in your pocket. So I think that was most instructive. 
Well, we're going to hopefully be teaching you lots more useful lessons about money and economics as the night goes on. But it's not just about learning things we need to know to make us money. It's about learning about things that can protect us from losing money. And I think at the moment, with the economic backdrop to our talk tonight, that is very important because arguably the biggest story of the year, Sarah, has been the Bank of England cranking up the pressure on our household balance sheets by raising interest rates to try to tame inflation. Now, the medicine appears to be working. We've seen a big drop in inflation this week. But how are you reading um, the market conditions at the moment? Are we going to see the cost of living crisis hopefully easing up a bit next year? Yeah, hopefully. But I think it's important to remember that you can't kind of undo what's just happened. So even though you know, the rate of inflation has come down, that still means that prices are rising at a pace of 4.6%. And it's, it's helpful sometimes, I think, to look at the level of prices rather than just the rate at which they're changing. So I actually wrote down some numbers from a very good FT story that was published by our colleagues. So um, food prices are 30% higher now than they were in January 2021. The price of sugar, baked beans, tinned tomatoes are all 50% higher. And we're not expecting deflation, so they're never going to come back down again. These are kind of huge changes in levels. A litre of olive oil, it cost £3.50 two years ago. It now costs £7.16. So, you know, and that's before you even start to think about what's happened to rents and other things that are a huge part of your incomes. And although now you've got inflation at 4.6 and wage growth is a bit higher, so it starts to feel as if okay, people are starting to make some kind of real terms gains. If you look over the past two years, wages have not risen by as much as prices have. So we're all kind of collectively poorer than we were two years ago. And I think the legacy of that is going to take quite a long time to unwind. Now, Susanna, you interviewed Hugh Pill, the Bank of England's chief economist. Now, how did that go? And give us your take on, on the outlook for next year. So, yes, so he came to Hargreaves Lansdowne and was meeting uh, business leaders as well from across the city, really trying to gauge the impact of interest rates um, on their on their businesses, as well as, of course, um, the financial resilience of individuals as well. Um, now, he also made a speech at the Fe Bristol Festival of Economics. Woo! <laughs> as we are here now. <laughs> And uh, really, he did stress that although we have seen that inflation is coming down, we are still seeing those price rises, albeit at a slower rate. The problem is, is that we're getting persistent wage growth. And so, for example, private wages going up by 7.7% in the year to October. And that is what the bank is worried about, that feeding through to services inflation. And so that is why we are getting these messages now from the Bank of England that rates are going to have to stay at a persistently high level for you know, a, a definitely a number of months. And we are getting other data through on insolvencies, for example, uh, reaching rates not seen since 2008 in the financial crisis. So because of that, the likelihood is, I think, that we will see these rates 5.25% stay for, you know, a considerable period of time. And although we should get cuts, if we don't get any more shocks to the economy, the second half of next year. Mm. Well, certainly that's what... Or at least the start of the cuts. Certainly, that's what the, the mortgage market is, is, is pricing in if you're somebody who's looking to refinance your home loan. Sarah, is there a risk that the Bank of England has overdone it? Yes. I mean, it's a really difficult job for the bank because you're kind of, it's like you're steering like a tanker or something and you turn it and then you have to wait quite a long time for it actually 
to turn. So, you know, that was always the case, but it's become more difficult because one of the kind of key ways that um, higher interest rates feed through to slowing down the economy is through people's mortgage rates. But actually many more people now than the last time we had a big kind of sharp increase in rates, which was in the 80s, many more people now own their homes outright. There's been a lot of baby boomers who've retired. They've kind of banked big rises in prices. They, they own their homes outright, so they don't have mortgages at all. And I think in every region of the country except London, that is the most common tenure is owner outright rather than people who are paying with a mortgage or people who are renting. So that's a lot of people that actually the the interest rates are not going to be Interest affecting. rates could be 15% and they... Wouldn't affect them as much. Care. I mean, there are other ways that they feed through, but that's, that's normally the key one. And also, you know, a lot of us now, myself included, are on these fixed rate deals, which means that it's... When it happens to you that you have to refinance, then it's a sudden sort of ouch moment is coming to us in March. Um, but that that's, that's happening more gradually in a sort of staggered effect rather than something that affects the economy all at once. So it might be that we find out middle of next year, they massively overdid it and we're kind of cratering into a recession and unemployment is, is shooting up. Um, at the moment, so, yeah, the bank's predictions are that unemployment is going to uh, rise, but more gradually, but certainly is going to be uh, ramping up. And we've done research at Hargreaves Lansdowne, our savings and resilience barometer, specifically looking at the effect of mortgages. And by July next year, it's estimated that three in five um, mortgage holders will have to be paying more. And almost a quarter are at risk of falling behind their payments. But what we are seeing is that the banks are really kind of moving and trying to offer extended terms, for example, and being a bit more lenient, which is probably why we haven't seen the price falls so far that were predicted earlier this year. But I do still think that there is a correction to come. Now, Sarah, you've also been in Bristol all day today. You did another panel at the Bristol Festival of Economics talking about how the economy and younger people uh, are interacting. Tell us a little about that. Yes, so that panel was about Generation Alpha, who are apparently the children now, basically. So I have a little four-year-old Gen Alpha kid at home. And it was it was sort of looking at their prospects, what kind of world are we going to bequeath to them? And it won't surprise you to learn that it was quite gloomy in many ways. You know, people were asking about the environment. They were asking about the impact of technology. There were some younger people in, in the audience who were saying that, you know, they feel really quite strongly that there's like a huge amount of competition for good jobs. And, you know, they're worried about that. And then obviously there's the question of new technology, artificial intelligence, robots. Is that going to make it harder for us or easier? So, yeah, lots of lots of sort of fears and concerns. And I would say a little bit of a sense of hopelessness from some of the younger people that, you know, they've been through COVID recently. They've just kind of grown up during an era of austerity. And I wouldn't say they were feeling massively optimistic, the ones in the audience anyway. It's interesting though, because if you then reflect on how your own career has progressed, we, we look quite a lot at female financial resilience through our campaign Financially Fearless. And uh, the gender investment gap, you know, is still very wide when it comes to pensions when it comes to investments mainly because women are still often the caregivers however you know on the flip side of that because of the hybrid working and the flexible working policies that have been brought in since the pandemic it has 
given women so many more opportunities. I simply couldn't have done my job without that real flexibility and that working from home opportunity, which has enabled me to have a full-time job and have three children and get up every morning pretty much at the crack of dawn, survey the financial markets and still often get to school in time. Although that is sometimes slightly problematic. But, (laughs) (laughs) But certainly had that flexibility not been around, I certainly wouldn't be able to have done my job. And so... For many people, actually, we've got a lot more opportunity. And that is actually quite reassuring for women when childcare costs are still so high. The pandemic has forced that change to happen faster than it would have done naturally. Now, I mean, the changes coming from AI, artificial intelligence, as you said, a worry very much for, for young people, a worry for slightly older people. I mean, could a robot replace me in the future? I, no, Claire, I hope never. not. <laughs> Susanna... AI is also something that fascinates investors. Tell us a bit more about that. Yes, certainly. I mean, what we've seen as far as the S&P 500 and Wall Street, it's really surged again this year, really fueled by this AI frenzy. So you've got the Magnificent Seven, those big tech giants. It's the likes of Amazon and uh, Microsoft and Alphabet. So they have such weight on the indices. And so the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. So when, of course, you invest in a tracker fund, you're putting a lot of money into just a handful of stocks, which is kind of risky in itself. But a lot of people want to know, well, where should I invest if I want to make the most of the AI revolution? And a lot have gone into into Wall Street. But some really interesting research has come out recently, looking at which countries might really benefit um, from the AI revolution. And actually throws up results you might not necessarily expect i mean well, should, should we ask the audience shout out what countries do you think will benefit from the ai number one revolution Who, which, which country around the world do you think will reap the most rewards and be the big biggest beneficiary is anyone brave enough to have a guess China. lots of china. people saying china we're going to put that in the back pocket it's actually the united states partly because of the dominance of tech firms Actually, it's not necessarily just about um, the innovation of AI, but it's actually also about how well the technology can be diffused and then adapted across economies. And so here in the UK, because of the higher education sector in particular, are bringing uh, some of the best talent from different countries around the world, and also the adaptability of firms to really take on new technological developments very quickly because it's quite advanced. That's one of the reasons why the UK is expected to be one of the big beneficiaries. Now, you mentioned China. My dad mentioned China. <laughs> They're in the, in the audience. I hope you didn't plant the answer. <laughs> yes. China is actually comes in at number 18, which is... Number 18? Quite surprising in this forecast. And this is because even though we know that China has spent an awful lot of, uh, of, of money and research in trying to advance its AI ambitions because of the chip wars that we have raging between the US and China right now, but also because of, you know, track record in China clumping down on the tech sector. It's expected that it's going to take longer for really AI to take hold within the economy. And what will probably happen is there'll be two spheres of influence, one led by the US, one led by China um, around the world. And so you may get fresh kind of geopolitical fracture because of that. Now, we're going to turn now... um Zoe, have you got your microphone? Fantastic, the wonderful Zoe. Actually, can we have a quick round of applause for Zoe, who's organised everything for us tonight? 
Now, <clears throat> our first question tonight is coming from a young man called Jay, who I buttonholed um, when he came in because he's age 16. And I think he might be, unless anyone wants to uh, claim otherwise, one of the youngest people in the audience. Jay, tell us your question, please. Hi, I'm Jay. I'm 16 and interested in learning about the stock market. How would you suggest uh, someone my age could dip into trading? Susanna, would you like to answer that? Um, so it's great that you're really interested already um, because obviously the sooner that you start, uh, the greater the prospects are for higher returns over time because actually we should look at it as a, as a long-term plan because uh, we know that the stock market can be volatile but if you look as over the longer term and have a longer horizon you have greater prospects of higher returns so if you're 16 i'd say the best way of getting stuck in would be certainly seeing if a parent or guardian can open a junior isa for you and then you could work with them to try and find out the best ways of investing and and the first rule really is don't put all your eggs in one basket I suppose I kind of like to use the analogy of cake for most things. Cake? Yes. You know, there's different things, asset classes like funds and shares. Let's take those two, for example. So if you think about a fund, well, think about a really big gatto with lots of layers in it. And essentially, if you buy a bit of a fund, you're, you're buying a slice of that gatto. And in that slice, you've got investments in lots of different companies. And then if you buy slices of lots of different funds, you're perhaps buying slices of different geographies and different sectors of the market. And that is absolutely crucial. But then you're spreading your risks because you've got all of those layers you're investing in. Now, shares, on the other hand, almost like those fairy cakes with lots of icing on top that you could buy at the fringes of those investments. Because if you just make up your portfolio with a number of shares, you're putting a lot of risk in just a, a few companies. And what you really want to do is spread your risk. And, you know, we talked about financial education. There is a huge amount of information out there on regulated financial sites. A lot of younger people are getting financial advice from social media. And the problem is that isn't regulated. They don't have to go through all of the hoops that we do in regulated firms to make sure that you're really balancing the risk and really make it clear to people um, what those risks are for any individual investment. So keep learning, um, keep reading. And thank you very much, Jay, um, for starting us off with a fantastic question tonight. Now, we had another question, I think, from over this side of the room. Somebody called out earlier about student debt. Um, would the person who said that like to put it in the form of a question to the panel, perhaps? Oh, you're a very good sport. I, I don't think I really understood how your student debt interest rate could vary over time and how it would be affected by inflation. I'm not sure if I'm right, but I, didn't, I kind of assumed that student debt, your student debt interest rate was kind of was fixed over the, over the 20 years. And are you someone who's finished university now? Or are you still studying? No, I'm still at uni. And here in Bristol? Yeah. Living in Newport? Thankfully not. Okay, all right. So Newport's very nice too. But I'm sure it's it not is. what you chose. <laughs> Maybe a bit of a long commute. Now, Sarah, you've written lots about student debt in the FT over the years, and it keeps changing, of, mm. of course. The system keeps changing. There are lots of retrospective changes. And lots of people don't realise that the interest rate is being applied from the day you start studying. Mm. Uh, that was a big shocker for me when I went to university. Um, so, yeah, so it will, the interest will, ch will change over time depending on inflation. So right now it looks appalling and hopefully it will start to look better. 
but the bright side is that it doesn't operate like a normal loan. Like if you're struggling, if you've not got a job. If you have a baby. If you have a baby, if you need to take time out, it, it's not going to be something that is um, causing you problems. But when you are earning over the threshold, it does become basically like a 7% tax. An extra tax. But the bit of hope that I want to give you is there's a huge body of economic data that shows that people who go to university and get a degree do earn more over the course of their working lives and careers. And they earn more even with that extra rate of graduate tax being clawed back from them through the student loan. Do we have any other people in the room who would like to ask the panel a question? If you do, then please raise your hand. Okay, we've got, we've got lots of questions. Oh, we'll go for the lady on the aisle, then we'll come to you in the, in the gilet. Um, actually, this is a question about housing. So you were just all talking about your mortgages and all I was thinking is that we are encouraged to own our homes still in Britain. It's a big thing. And I rent. I can't even, I wouldn't even begin to think about owning because I'm freelance. So forget it. You know, they just, they, they won't, they won't even look at me. But in Europe, renting is quite a big thing. Is it so bad to rent? I, I do think that our kind of obsession in the UK with home ownership and with getting more people on the housing ladder is partly because we allow renting to be such an unpleasant experience. But actually, we could fix that bit and then we wouldn't have to be so obsessed with home ownership. It is a problem, though, with the very fact that we just don't have enough houses to rent. And obviously, with no-fault evictions, it's, it's aimed at ensuring people can stay in those homes for longer. But ultimately, you do need to have many more homes uh, constructed to be able to be rented out and certain some of the changes that have been brought in are pushing more landlords out of the the buy-to-let sector because they can't offset their tax so efficiently high mortgage rates and shortage ultimately so there are some structural issues why renting still certainly isn't the the favorable option given that rents are, are even higher than mortgage payments despite the fact that they've also gone up so yeah, dramatically. Nobody's talking about giving help to renters. But a related question. So you said you were a freelancer. So there's an awful lot of discrimination, frankly, in the financial system against freelancers, people who don't have a regular wage. But there's more and more people who are working as freelancers or in the gig economy. That's a way of dressing it up. Tell us your thoughts about that. Yeah, so definitely in the UK, and in fact, you mentioned entrepreneurship as well. I mean, in the UK, since the financial crisis, the last one in 2008, there's been a huge increase in the proportion of people who are self-employed. And that ranges from people being Uber drivers or riding for Deliveroo to people setting up their own kind of independent one-person consultancies. It's been a real, a real kind of mixture of people that have decided to become self-employed. But yeah, I feel like the other structures in our economy haven't necessarily caught up with the fact that this is becoming a much more common way of working. So yeah, things like getting a mortgage are much, much harder than they need to be, probably. I think the, yeah, a lot of our kind of financial institutions are still kind of wedded to the notion of most people having a sort of traditional nine-to-five job, but actually the world of work hasn't been like that for quite a long time. I mean, even things like direct debits, we've got the same amount of money coming out for something every month. It would be wonderful if we could have some flexibility with that one. Well, thank you very much for your question. And we had one more question um, from the man in the gilet. Uh, thank you. A term that's been used by the panel this evening and is in the press quite a lot at the moment, and you could argue as 
the downfall of Liz Truss is stimulating growth. What is it in practical terms and why is it so important? Great question. Why is growth so important? Who wants to go first? I can. Go. Um, so if the economy isn't growing, then the pie isn't growing, basically. I mean, Liz Truss talked about the pie and it became very annoying and a weird mixed metaphor. <laughs> but the, the basic point holds, I think, that everything becomes a bit harder if things aren't growing. We end up with these very difficult fights over how to divide it and who gets how much. Whereas in the kind of nice decade of the 90s, we had growth at like a steady 2.5-3% a year. Wages were growing kind of steadily, but just slightly above inflation. And everything just kind of becomes a bit easier. You know, you can invest more, you can support your public services. And, and when the economy isn't growing, all of that just becomes harder. And particularly if the population is aging and so some of the kind of the things that you need to spend money on are becoming ever greater it becomes difficult if you don't have more kind of tax revenue coming in from the fact that there are growing companies that are making more money and more people working and that sort of thing that said I think sometimes economic growth gets kind of fetishized and I think Liz Truss fell into this trap a bit and I think it's always worth remembering that like growth is a means to an end it, it shouldn't be an end in itself like we want to grow the economy in order to be able to live good happy healthy lives not we're not living our lives in service to simply like achieving a certain gdp number and i think sometimes politicians in particular seem to get get that a bit muddled yes and there's a difference between short-term growth short-term stimulus and long-term growth and um if you cut taxes you'll put more money into people's pockets that they'll spend more and the UK economy is very reliant on consumer spending but that's not necessarily a very healthy way to be for the longer term to stimulate growth of the longer term you really need to have rather more money going to the pockets of individuals more money into longer term investments that can provide that growth in decades to come and kind of provide the backbone for the economy. And I think, you know, that's where the argument is, is really going to go next year when we go into the election is that how it's best to stimulate that growth and what kind of growth do we want? Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're nearly at time. It remains for me to say thank you very much to our panel. Susanna Streeter, Head of Money and Markets at Hargreaves Lansdowne, Sarah O'Connor, Associate Editor at the FT. Thanks to Bristol Ideas for inviting us down to take part. Bristol Grammar School and its pupils. And to you all for being a fabulous audience. <laughs> now... That's it for Money Clinic with me, Claire Barrett, and we hope you've enjoyed listening to this live episode. If you'd like us to extend our tour to your part of the world or have an idea for a future episode, then get in touch. Our email address is money at ft.com. You can also follow me on Instagram. I'm at Claire B. Money Clinic was produced by Persis Love and Tamara Kamornik. Sound design was by Breen Turner and our editor is Manuela Saragossa. You heard original tunes this week by Metaphor Music and Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. And finally, our usual disclaimer, the Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor. That's all the small print for now. We'll see you back here next week and thanks for having us Bristol!
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.